0: Good, I would like to ask for your attention, some considerations on practice. I'd like to do two things this morning. One is um, zoom in and look at the stratification of the stage from total distraction to reasonable field awareness. Um, And the second thing I want to do is to zoom out even further and do more or less the opposite and look at dimensions of what I think are indispensable in the project of Buddhist contemplation. What the Buddhist texts call Bhavana, calling into being a term that we have strangely translated with the word meditation. Um, let me start with that one. The term meditation, can, Latin meditari, thinking, is not an obvious candidate as a translation for what Buddhists mean with when they call something bhavana. It's this bhavana has many dimensions. One of them is about body. It's my relationship to this body, to other bodies, and to the physical world. That's one dimension of bhavana, explicitly mentioned. I'm not making this up. This is canonical early Buddhism, okay? Um, Second dimension is sila bhavana, which has to do with our relationship to the social world. A dimension of bhavana. The third one, now we're getting closer to what we have come to understand meditation to be, is about citta-bhavana, which means basically instilling the mind with brahmaviharas. That's one dimension of citta-bhavana. Learning to uh, gradually immerse the mind into the paradigms of empathy, loving-kindness or friendliness, compassion or trembling along with, as the old word says, anukampati, means to tremble along with something. The third one is joy, sympathetic joy. The fourth one is equanimity. So in the third dimension of bhavana, we're asked to develop these paradigms of mind. That's one half. The other half is learning to still the mind. (coughs) Underestimated in our time, because it's difficult to do, the mind, although it likes to be still and it enjoys being unified, we struggle with the notion of stillness. We misconstrue it as concentration, as a sort of forced, controlled, perpetual attentiveness, um, which it is not. Uh, and stillness is deeply craved for. At the same time, um, neither the inside movement, of which we are part of here, um, nor the aptitude of Western minds, trained to manage huge amounts of information, find it particularly easy to gain stillness. Most people, even those with talents in that quarter, tend to think they never get enough of it. Finally, the fourth dimension of bhavana is the development of wisdom. That's where we get close to, say, Insight practices, questioning practices, deepening, examining, vipassana, in the textbook term. So, the Buddhist notion of mind cultivation, he calls bhavana, has these four branches. For some reason, we have forgotten most of these branches and decided that bhavana is basically something we do when we sit on our bums on retreat. And, you know, there's a dramatic reduction of the original suggestion what mind cultivation consists of has something to do with my relationship to, to bodies and ultimately to this planet in, 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 in whose biosphere I, I live. Uh, it has something to do with the societies I inhabit. It has something to do with making this mind both peaceful and caring, empathetic. And finally, there's something to do with gaining insight, understanding, developing depth of uh, penetration. So all this is a huge program. And somehow this has shriveled down to meditation. And meditation is sitting on a cushion. And sitting on a cushion is mindfulness. And mindfulness is paying attention to my nose. (coughs) And you realize there's a few things lost along the way. So um, on every level... Reduction reductionism has taken place. You know, Bhavana has shriveled to one dimension, namely stillness or insight. Stillness and insight has developed to one posture, namely sitting. Uh, it, it, it governance and stewarding of attentional focus has become me observing my nose when it's breathing in and breathing out. Yeah. So many things have kind of lost all their depth and their texture. So I think it's fair to acknowledge that. If we want this contemplation bhavana thing to take off, we have to identify, and now we're strictly non canonical, we have to identify four different dimensions that really have to be part of our practice. Let me outline what I think these four are. And again, I have no Pali words for these. They are, you take them with the necessary pinch of salt. I I cannot claim canonical evidence for them. But it seems to me that the first of these dimensions is about learning to still, learning to settle the baby, learning to modulate speed, intensity, and diversity in our mental functioning. It's not difficult to see that this is a recommendation. Many Indian traditions, the yogic traditions, particularly adamant about this. um, Patanjali begins his Yoga Sutras with... Yoga is distilling of mind functions. Jitavrtini yeah? roda, bringing the thing to quiet. Buddhists have a slightly different spin. They say, yeah, quiet is important, but then we're going to actually look at some of the patterning in the bit that isn't yet quiet, and we gain some insights from that, because that tells us something, how we live in the world. But there can be no question that the mind coming from a busy life needs, first of all, skills, patience, time, energetic disposition to become more still. That means if you're very frantic, you need to know how to take it from very frantic to a a little less frantic. If your mind is already reasonably still, you need to know and have the skill to take it from reasonably still to deep calm. Yeah. At any stage, we need to know how to pick these minds up or how to receive them where they are and take them from wherever we find them at whatever velocity, at whatever degree of busyness and take them into deeper ease, deeper stability, deeper stillness. Yeah. No amount of open awareness is ever going to get you there unless you have hands-on sk- stilling skills, Okay. There's no way you can break through to the non-dual without having the capacity to take your mind from, pick it up wherever it is and learn how to modulate it in ways that infuse it with deeper calm, deeper stillness, deeper stability. So the first task is clearly that we learn to become more quiet, that we learn to soothe ourselves self soothing is a very, very powerful skill that human beings learn. You know, we all cannot avoid tragedies. We're highly sensitized. We're totally dependent on others. We are um, easily overstimulated. So um, our minds are inevitably going to be traumatized. You know, even if you have a very privileged past, you will be traumatized somewhere along the lines. And the question is not, how many of these can I avoid? Avoid all of them if you can, but you know, be sure that, rest assured that you will not be able to avoid all of them. So the question is, how do I crawl out of the hole once I get hit? Once things go wrong, once I, you know. the question is, what skills do I develop? How resilient can I become? How self-soothing uh, I can learn to to you know fall back onto techniques that help me. Regain strength, recover, recuperate, and uh, raise my gaze again to, to and continue walking. So in many ways, as a meditator, we have to learn to become adept at stilling our minds, irrespective of the contents of our minds. You know? We're so preoccupied with fixing content, and the implicit message is always, if I fix this, then I can become still. But that's not how it works. You have to be prepared to become still while it's still unfixed. Okay, That's the real challenge. We have to be able to park, to put aside, to dedicate time, to leave the most hypnotically alluring of our obsessions aside. And as a therapist, I have to tell you, you cannot practice with an obsession. Okay. This may not be obvious to everybody, but you cannot be mindful of an obsession. It's in the nature of an obsession that if you're trying to be mindful you're enacting your obsession. So there has to be very great honesty. I'm telling you all this because I think one of the crucial skills meditators need is orientation. They need to find out where they are at with themselves. There's a wealth of tools, there's a wealth of contemplative teachings available, but if we are not oriented to what's actually happening and what might be useful for us. All the treasure trove of Buddhist contemplative tools just are not useful because we're standing there and because we don't acknowledge, as Mr. Schneer, I quoted the other day, who says that we don't understand technology if we think technology is solving our problems, and worse, we're not understanding our problems, you know. Has aptly put it: If we do not know what's happening to us, then the best of tools at our fingertips won't help. <coughs> so, one of the first skills is becoming honest and becoming clear what actually takes place. In my experience, stilling is number one. The second one is learning to distance, is learning to de-identify. It means it's the famous step back, me. Having something to do with this experience, but no longer being the experience getting off stage into the audience space yeah looking the thing being enacted, but then I can distance myself a little bit I can breathe more deeply and I get perspective. the relief opens up I can see things and I'm no longer being these things there's a part of me that holds a dynamic, and there's another part of me that is capable of seeing and understanding. Maybe not entirely understanding, but at least of becoming aware of that I understanding. The knowing is the being aware of it. So that little step is crucial. For many people, that step is meditation. If I kind of listen... Often people think this is what meditation is. It is the thing that makes me safer. It's the thing that allows me to go away from the problem. I learn to distance. I learn to step back. I learn to gain perspective. I learn to de-identify. And this is true. This is an absolute indispensable and necessary skill. However, the problem may not go away just because I have learned to go away from the problem. I may feel safer, I may feel more calm, I may feel more controlled, I may feel less threatened through overwhelm, but (laughs) only as long as I stay away. And I may not be able to stay away. Many of the problems happen to not go away just because I choose to go away. When I come back in, the problem is going to continue exactly as I left it. So that's why the second stage albeit indispensable, is not the whole of the program of meditation. It's not the whole of the program of Bhavana. The purpose is not to just control my life in a way that I'm not getting overwhelmed anymore. Although not getting overwhelmed is a totally legitimate uh, wish, it's a totally um, understandable pursuit. However, getting away from things often leaves us in a treacherous peacefulness as long as we manage to stay away. And as soon as we engage again, we get overwhelmed. That's why meditation not necessarily solves our relational issues. Or when we meditate on retreat, all is fine. And then I go back to these horrible, unpeaceful people who just happen to be my family or my job or... If, I'm, if getting away is my major strategy to feel peace, then, you know, my whole world suddenly becomes one huge meditational obstacle. Your job, your kids, your partners, you know, all these people become meditational obstacles. At the least at that stage, you have to acknowledge something has gone wrong in your notion of practice. It's not lost, but, you know, something has gone wrong. If your practice consists of basically getting away from things, this is unlikely to be terribly liberating. Also, it's pretty lonely out there. And many things cannot be understood. They can be seen from a distance, but they cannot actually be transformed. Transcendence means you need to go up to it. You need to be in touch with it. You can only transcend things you have actually arrived at. You can't transcend things from a distance, however much we would like. Just developing somewhere out there in the peacefulness enough wisdom that we completely avoid and circumnavigate the issue. That's not how it seems to work. by my. Uh, if you figure that one out for yourself, wonderful. But I have found that this doesn't do the job for me. So the next stage demands, after I have reassured myself that I can stay out of some of my big things, that I've learned to still the mind, that I have learned to de-identify with it, I'm willing to crawl back in, into the very things I have learned to de-identify myself from. I'm willing to, in a negotiated, respectful, unhurried way, I'm crawling back in and actually learning to relate in new ways to that dynamic. I'm beginning to fathom, I'm beginning to examine, I'm beginning to deeply allow myself to be affected and wise with it. Rather than jumping in or running away, I'm actually getting closer and see, can I handle this? Is this still what it looked like a moment before? What are my options here? Could I do something different? Uh, Is it transforming when I approach it in that way? If I do that as slow as I'm doing now, do I see gaps, cracks, ways in? Do I find another way into this process rather than repeating what I all too fami- know all too familiar uh, as, a, as an all too familiar pattern? So, that third dimension, the investigating, the inquiry, the probing into, the fathoming, the being with, lingering, as Catherine said, a few days ago. Uh, Learning to linger more skillfully. Not loiter. Linger, okay? (laughs) Okay. And being affected and playing one's cards, you know, we're not stupid. We have learned a few things. We've become more aware of capacities. The mind is incredibly sensitive, yes, but it's also incredibly powerful. A little shift of emphasis and suddenly something else happens following an encouragement, a line, and something transforms, changes, becomes resourceful. Wonders take place. I don't need to repeat my old numbers. But I can only do that if I'm actually willing to have this, if I'm willing to own, if I'm willing to stand in my truth. So that third stage is crucial. The fourth stage is, uh, in some ways, going out again. Well, the third stage is very personal. It means I meet my personal hang ups, I meet my personal virtues, I meet my personal history. It's all very personal in that third stage. In the fourth stage, I learn to understand the territory I have traversed in the third stage now in universal terms. I learn to understand how this looks when you have it. Yeah. I learn to understand the dynamics of things like freedom, conditionality, dynamics of that lead to a deepening of stillness, dynamics that lead to a confusion. I begin to understand what I have personally charted as a universal dynamic that may look slightly different when you have it, when you're there. So I learn to recognize the terrain I have crossed in personal terms in um, not impersonal terms, but maybe in transpersonal terms. I begin to understand something about fear or about power or about honesty when it is manifest in other terms than in the ones I have personally experienced in my upbringing, socialization, my my particular biographical givens. So these four stages seem all to me indispensable. Any attempt to cut one one of them out seems to either invalidate the whole venture of contemplative growth or it seems to make it very lopsided. If I leave out the first one, it will th- the others will just not happen. Yeah. If I leave the first one out, it's unlikely that I will have... Um, even get close to transformative understanding. Yeah. If I leave the second one out, I I may always be over over identified with the stuff. I may believe that I need to while other people can just begin and start to meditate, I have to actually do work before I can even start. Yeah. So you may feel that you're starting well other people start at zero. You start in debt. Yeah. Some of us feel that way. Somehow we sense that the instructions for us to do meditation and open up, they're somehow not applicable because we're so specially depraved cases. We actually need to get out of the red before we can even arrive at zero. So, um, If you don't do the third one, you will keep trying to get away from stuff. Your strategy will be, key, will be dissociative and you will keep trying to gain safety and security and control. If you're not doing the fourth, you'll be preoccupied with the personal nature of experience. It, it's all still very personal. You'll be tempted to construe a very personal world. Obviously, there is a, a psychopathology for all these stages. Uh, let me be straight. You know, the first one, if you're stuck in the psychopathology, it means you'll never get quiet enough. You know, something in you says, yeah, yeah this Buddhism stuff is nice nice as it is. For me, I only take this stuff. I need to get more quiet, you know, really more quiet. Before it gets more quiet, I can't really do anything. So you become obsessed with that part. You become um, fixated on quiet. And the whole rest is not relevant to you because you somehow have decided that you need more quality on that one. And that means that Very little insight is probably going to happen. You will have some insights against your will, because you can't possibly only do samatha without understanding something that stops you from having samatha. But it will be a fixation. If you're stuck on the second one, then you will keep trying to get more control. You will keep trying to get further away. You will keep trying to be more dissociated, so that it feels more safe. Still too risky. Still not enough safety, still too overwhelming, still too, less dis- too less little distance between me and the problem. You know? Got to gotta free myself from this, got to keep this away, got to control that, got to cut this one out. You know? It will be in this. If you're stuck in the third phase, then... We dramatize. Generally, enactment is the issues. Yeah, so much stuff. I need to work through so many traumas, so many neuroses, so much more inner child work is needed. Years and years and years. You know, you're kind of accumulating more problems than you have time to work up. You know, you're kind of 60 and you're still and you're still only age six. Yeah. So, so this is kind of sense of I'm not. It's not intense enough. It's not deep enough. It's not, and you know, I haven't. It's not through enough. You know, it, this needs to be purified more. Or, and you have generally a, a strong trust in intensity. So, and it's all deeply personal and full of stories and full of images and every little feeling really truly needs to be acknowledged and held and cherished and felt and savoured and you know, so, and it's endless. So that's the story, you know, getting stuck in number 3. Um getting stuck in number 4 maybe I think this is less of a danger but you may be a little obsessed with maps and it's a little too cognitive. You're trying to avoid the personal bit, you know, you're trying to understand things in on the big scheme of things, but where it gets you actually personally where your heart and your guts are involved. Somehow that's the bit you try to skirt, you know, and like to hover in the, the big ideas, the big vision, the big process, the big transpersonal thing is more your domain. And uh, where you're personally touched, concerned in your loving, in your aging, in your needs, in your desires, in your losses, all this bit you may try to sidestep. So consider these four dimensions. The dimension of stilling, the dimension of de-identifying, the dimension of actually going back in and investigating, probing, fathoming, deeply willing to have the experience that takes place, but have it from a more conscious, from a more sober, from a more reflective, from a stilled place of view that does not rush in. And dimension four, actually learning to understand the personal and transpersonal terms, learning to see the bigger picture, learning to look around you and see dynamics at work that you have individually and personally understood and that may be understood in different ways for other people because of their other stories. My experience is that generally there is a lot of shuttling going on. You can't do one stage and then you kind of graduate to the next. Uh, What what usually is happening is that you basically start with stilling. And um, part of that stilling already will entail some degree of de-identifying, stepping back, moving away from learning to gain perspective. And then usually stuff starts happening. So sometimes you can hold the clarity and be with this in a way that is capable of feeling and knowing in parallel ways. And sometimes you're just going to get roped in. And at one point you realize that what you set out to contemplate and introspectively understand, actually you've become part of. You've become part of the problem again. And then you humbly acknowledge this and go back to stillness practice. So you shuttle. I call this shuttle diplomacy. So you're willing to shuttle between samatha exercises, stilling exercises. And once you feel safe and once you feel reasonably still again, you say, okay, can I open up and look at this that stops me from gaining even more stillness? What is it that is there? Can I be more conscious in relationship with this? Does it respond to my... Sobered, attuned awareness, do I discern patterns in there? Is this more greed or more hatred or more confusion? Is this anxious? is anxious, this is judgmental, this kind of thing, and when you notice that you get pulled in again, you go back to stillness exercises a hundred times, a thousand times. It doesn't matter how much you do this. What does matter is that you do it and that you're honest and sober with yourself, that you acknowledge this is what takes place, that you own your experience without glorifying your experience or denying your experience. Good. So that's the zoom out version. If we're going to zoom in very briefly, let me speak of a few stages of basically from uh, what I would call attention zero to a reasonably stabilized field awareness. Attention zero means that basically your attention goes any place that you have a stimulus going on. You have no anchor. You have no identified task. but Your mind just goes. A thought pops up, so your mind goes to the thought. The sound happens, your mind goes to the sound. Somebody walks past and smells of shampoo, your mind goes to the olfactory stimulation, and you're with the shampoos and what people put on their bodies and things like that. So it's the kind of no anchor, attention simply goes what involuntary attention always does. It goes to the dominant sensory stimulus. It stays there for a while until the next stimulus comes. If there are no outer stimuli, you'll turn inward and you find, in your, you rummage around in your memories, find something to associate with, something that makes you nice and angry or something that makes you nice and longing or something that gives you warm, fuzzy feelings, Yeah. That's what involuntary attention always does. It's basically scanning for promising events. If you're in a situation like here, probably where uh, very little entertainment is offered and very, we make a conscious effort to, to-, to tone down the stimulations for you, uh, you will turn inwards. Then you will either think about things in the past that have been nice or you will think about things in the future. Anecdotal evidence has it: uh, when you're young, you think a little more about the future. As you're getting older, you seem to be thinking a little more about the past. Either way, the pattern is very similar. Seeking out things that were pleasant give you sort of a pleasant afterglow. This is not quite as good as having it, but it at least gives you sort of a pleasant, fuzzy afterglow. That's the stimulus, and that's what the mind does: an involuntary attentional mind is what is continually seeking stimuli and continually seeking to go away from stimuli. Involuntary attention is favored by evolution. It has helped us cope with um, saber-toothed tigers and all kinds of sudden things, so involuntary attention is really useful if you need to do something that you haven't prepared for. Unfortunately. Involuntary attention is not very useful for contemplative undertakings. It's perpetually restless. It quickly starts to mope if it's not stimulated in ways. It feels despondent and another evening without decent conversation. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's kind of nothing to eat, nobody to smile at. You know, this is really glo- gloomy. Yeah. just me, just me and my grey number. Yeah, so. An involuntary attentional mind is perpetually on the lookout for something. It tries to avoid things and it tries to get things. So contemplative traditions across the board have understood that involuntary attention is pretty useless when it comes to meditative pursuits. Um, so there's another type of attention, which psychologists call voluntary attention, which means I deliberately choose what I attend to. Mr. James, uh, hundred years ago, more than a hundred years ago, uh, said basically we become what we attend to. What we attend to becomes our experience. Very simple and very true. Whatever my attention goes to, this will become my experience. Nothing will become your experience that doesn't go through the window of your attention. So if your attention is preoccupied with involuntary processes, your experience will be alike. You'll be continually dragged around by things. William James, in many ways, comes to the same conclusion as the Buddha. If we have not learned to focalize our attention, we have no control over our experience. We may be dragged anywhere. A happy thought, followed by a happy emotion, nestling in, sitting and residing with us for a moment. An unhappy thought, the thin thread of an unhappy thought, pulls along a really chubby... Fat emotion, an unhappy emotion, and this emotion then stays with us, affects our physiology. While the thought seemed connected to something that may never have happened, just we remember it that way, or it has happened but a long time ago, is followed by an emotion. The emotion happens now. While the content of the thought may have happened 30 years ago, the emotion connected with that thought happens now. The physiological effect of that emotion happens now. My chest caves in, my look starts to get a bit more dog-like, you know. My outlook, my perceptual apparatus, all of this is infected right now by an emotion which is somatically real right now, triggered by a thought that is utterly unreal. So there is a risk about thinking around in stray thoughts. We are easily prey. To all kinds of subsequent processes, if we just allow this mind to stray around. Now, stress reduction has a lot to say. Depression therapy has a lot to say about this. First thing you do is to try to stop people from thinking around in unfortunate, unhappy, repetitive ways about stuff they can't change, about stuff that may never have happened. <laughs> you know. So, voluntary attention is taking responsibility for the attentional focus. What do I give my attention to? Is it focused? Is it wide? Is it close up? Is it holding perspective? So, stage two, if you want to practice that, you need to anchor attention. You need to give attention tasks. So, we come from attention one to attention two, which means there is an anchor. And I find it difficult to stay with that anchor. I have identified an area of my body, maybe I'm a meditator, to attend to the felt quality of my belly when it breathes in, when it breathes out. Now, uh, this may be difficult, but I now have a task, and I now have an acknowledgement that when my attention is on task and when it is off task, I also have an agreement that I bring it back when it is off task. So, however often I have to bring it back, I do make that effort, and by that I strengthen both the capacity to stay more continually with a chosen object, and I weaken the pattern of the mind to just uh, stray around. This may subjectively not feel good, but it actually, every time you bring back the mind to your anchor, you weaken the habit of straying, and you strengthen the habit of staying (coughs) with We all have attention. It's not a magic experience. The power and the magic begins when attention becomes continuous. We're all episodically and topically attentive. But we hop. And depending how we hop, the gaps are fairly sizable between one moment of conscious attention and the next. Mindfulness practice begins with attention practice, learning to stabilize attentional focus and to gain continuity. That's where the magic sets in, when we learn to stay with stuff longer. So stage two of attention has a better object constancy. We're more conscious, we're capable of staying longer. There's still stuff that pulls us off the sledge, but we crawl back on. We don't lose our object anymore for a long period of time. Stage one, we were still kind of dragged off and may have forgotten about it. Only to remember, minutes later, ah, breath, meditation, retreat, right. Yeah. Stage two is, you have still at the periphery things happening, thoughts coming, nagging, pulling, offering, bribing, threatening, whatever your thoughts do. Mind generally, they want something for me. and They say things like, believe me. I'm important. Do something about me. Don't just sit here. You know, uh, I'm the last good thought you're gonna have today. <laughs> Think me to the end. I am the thought that takes you to peace. <laughs> you know, kind of signs like last station, be- last fuel station before. <laughs> something like that. Yeah, that's what my thoughts do. You have to find out what your thoughts do. It's good to know how they speak to you. Mine generally have sort of a a hortative appeal character sometimes more seductive and sometimes more threatening. So there is a necessity to withstand the affect of this appeal. And if you withstand that affect, it becomes more stable what you do. You're associating more continually with the object of your attention. Stage three becomes really interesting because now you have reasonable Decent object constancy. There are still some niggles at the periphery, but you're not getting pulled off your sledge anymore. You're conscious of not just your object, but also of some potential distractions, you're conscious of your body, but it becomes increasingly easy to actually stay with, say, the something like the breath. You're not totally safe. Something big may still pull you off, you may still get lost, you may become a little complacent, and then things become hazy at the edges. You know, you'll know this. All of you have had this. I have no doubt. Okay. Or this is a map you have all seen the territory of. Yeah. If all goes well, then the next stage it becomes really interesting. And this is when your object constancy is fluid. Yeah. The attention has now a fluid dimension. And that's what makes the gap between attention and mindfulness. One of the things that is... Uh, the threshold there is that attentional focus is now fluid. And with the fluidity of your attentional focus something very interesting starts to happen. It is possible that the space widens. And in the space it becomes possible that the stabilized field awareness is strong enough that differing objects can come and go without your attention going when the object goes. Up to now we were in need of the object so that we could stabilize our attention on it and still our attention on it. Now it becomes the space of awareness becomes stable enough that the object is no longer dispensable, it has become dispensable. It is possible to become object independent in our awareness. This is a very interesting part. That's where open awareness starts to become a real possibility. Before that, open awareness is just choiceless unawareness. Okay, It's just going wherever you want. And it's not terribly useful. It's not terribly transformative. And it would be... We're doing ourselves a disservice if we call it open awareness. There is an open awareness. I have no doubt. It's useful. But we have to give it the right name. If... An unanchored and unfocused drifting mind is called open awareness just because it's comfy to hover there and just do whatever it likes to do and feel good about it. It's true, it doesn't cost anything. You can do a lot more harmful things with your mind than that. But this is not really what the traditions who speak of open awareness mean. They mean a stabilized field awareness that is now object-independent. Yeah? In other words, our attention, when the object disappears, does not collapse with the disappearing option. It stays. The field stays open. So that's when things really begin interesting, because at that stage we can actually have perspective, uh, we have curiosity, we have mobility, we have vitality, and we begin more deeply connecting with the process nature of the apparent object that is in the focus of our attention. After that, it's all samadhi. Yeah? It's differing degrees of stillness. So I'd like you to take this and kind of, as a sort of chart, uh, look at which bits of this sound familiar. Be also interested in the bits that you think are not familiar, because they there may be bits you need to bring into being, as the word Bhavana says so beautifully. Part of this is Strengthening what's there and what's not there has to be brought into being, calling it into life. Good. Let me end here um, on this part. Um, Let's be quiet for a few minutes and... Good for walking, I would. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.